You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. So good to be here. Uh, I'm the Aaron that was on the screen. This is my wife, Susie, down in front, and two of our our kids are with us. So we have uh, five kids, as, as you were told. Our last name is Rock, so we just affectionately call them the Five Smooth Stones. And uh, the oldest one just finished his first year at Heritage College. He's studying theology there, but really he has uh, an eye to take over uh, David uh, Jacob's job. So uh, he likes to to lead worship, and uh, we're so thankful for him. And he's growing not only in his hunger for the word of God, but he also has his eyes on a young girl there. So that's sort of uh, one of the reasons why he's uh, in Bible college slash bridal college. Just don't tell him I said that. Uh, then we have uh, two kids in high school. Kezia is just going into grade 12. By the way, our oldest is Josiah. So Kezia is going into grade 12, and then Levi is going into grade uh, 10, and uh, grade 11. And then we have Simon. He just uh, finished with honors, uh, grade 8. And uh, then we have Abigail. She's in grade 6, finishing grade 6, going into grade 7. So by God's grace, all of our children know the Lord Jesus. We're so so, so thankful for that, that God has seen fit to just uh, reveal himself to them and they serve in our church. And one of, one of my joys as a father who's also a pastor is when you see your children serving and you didn't know they were serving in that area of ministry, so you just kind of see it in the bulletin or you see it in the news or you walk by a room and they're serving, you're like, well, this is kind of cool because I don't want them to ride on my shirt tails, right? So that's been pretty cool for us as, as parents. And being part of the Harvest Bible Fellowship family's truly been a blessing. I'm so thankful for Pastor Daryl. I see him there uh, halfway up the, the row. I'm so thankful for him and for our friendship and for his wife, Ruth. And um, it's just so, so, so good to be part of a fellowship that's alive and well and, and that is laser-focused on the things that really matter. We're just finding a lot, of, a lot of joy in that. And so we're here today. We hope that we're, we're a blessing to you. Uh, happy 150th birthday to our country. You know, as, as Canadian Christians, we often bemoan all of the things in our country that we don't particularly like or appreciate, certain laws being passed, certain things happening, but today we just want to take some time to thank the Lord that when we came to church today, did any of you get pulled over by a police officer for other than speeding and told that you couldn't go to church? Was anybody barring your way to get in here? No? We have this incredible gift, this freedom that we have to worship in a country like this. And so thank you for inviting me on Canada Day weekend to come and minister to you. By the way, your pastor's a very strategic thinker. Did you know that? Because when I accepted this uh, invitation, I didn't realize it was on a Canada Day weekend. And it just kind of dawned on me last night, he's up watching fireworks, hanging out, par- probably partying into the wee hours of the morning. And I have to go to bed because I got to preach in the morning. So thank you for that, Daryl. I appreciate that. Good to be here. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to find our way to Mark chapter 4. And uh, if you're new to to church, if you can find the New Testament, which starts in Matthew, it's just the second book and it's the shortest of four Gospels. We have some people in the the aisles. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, you can just throw up your hand and they'd be glad to provide you with one. Uh, We do allow electronic Bibles. Uh, you don't get as many brownie points for that, but um, you're, you are allowed to use those. It is the word of God. But find your way to Mark chapter 4, and we're going to spend some time there today. Now, as we uh, prepare to hear what the Lord has, has for us, let me just start off by kind of getting us thinking about this, 
this interesting dynamic which is part of so many of our lives, and that is that many things are very, very easy to say. Very easy to say. But they can be very difficult to practice. Hopefully your mind's already turning. Things that are easy to say, difficult to practice. Can you think of some? I wrote down a few here. How about this one? I love you with all of my heart. Easy to say, but like, really? You love me with every little aspect of your heart. There's nothing in you that's held back. Well, maybe I'm holding back a little bit. Easy to say, and it's nice to hear, but that is a very, very difficult thing to put into practice, to truly love someone with all of our hearts. That takes some superhuman effort. How about this one? Uh, I'm committed to healthy food choices. Are you really? You don't look like you're committed to healthy food choices. Great ideal, awesome goal, may or may not be a reality for most of us. Here's a sad one. Uh, Many uh, people uh, stand up in front of an audience like this with the one they've chosen as their partner for life and they say, till death do us part. And then a few years later, well, they're not together, right? Easy to say, you're all dressed up, the guests have arrived, we paid for the wedding, we might as well say it. But many people don't really mean that. How about this one? I always drive the speed limit, Dad. Well, you made it home awfully fast. Do you always drive the speed limit? How about this one, which is so relevant to the Gospel of Mark? I have total faith in Jesus. Total faith in Jesus. My faith never wavers. Really? Do you have total faith in Jesus? I've been walking with the Lord for a long, long, long time. And I just got to admit, in front of you, we're supposed to be honest in church, right? I don't always have the kind of faith in Jesus that I should. This is what we're challenged to consider when it comes to the latter part of Mark chapter 4. It's easy to talk about faith. We hear sermons on faith all the time. But what God's really looking for is all the time faith. He wants us to exercise all the time faith in the Lord Jesus. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see why that's so important and what the source of our faith really is. So here's the big idea. Jesus invites us to all the time faith. All the time faith. That means daily, every day, not just Sunday mornings, all the time. Without fail, here's where it gets tough, no matter the circumstances, faith. That's what we're gunning for. That's our goal. That's our ideal. That's what God wants for us. And in Mark chapter four, we're challenged to consider Do I actually have that? So do you need some of that? I need some of it. Do you have it? Maybe not. Do you want it? You can, but there's certain things that you need to consider from God's word. So Mark chapter four, and we're gonna focus in on an episode that is recorded for us in verses 35 to 41. This episode is very vivid. When the gospel writer wrote this, the kind of detail and emotion that he records suggests that he or the person he directly heard it from 
was in the boat. This was more than just a little sermonette on truth. It almost reads in such a way that you think, man, this, I, I think this person learned this lesson. I think they were there. I think they experienced it. And it's a lesson that I need to learn too. One other comment before I take you to the text. If you read Mark chapter one, Mark chapter two, Mark chapter three, first part of Mark chapter four, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily Jesus is ministering out to people who are considering his message, not yet followers, unbelievers. If they were in our day and age, we'd call them the unchurched. So he's ministering to the crowd. But starting in chapter four, verse 35, Jesus is ministering to people who are already following him, who have assisted him in ministry, who participated into his, in his ministry. So they're kind of like the equivalent of us. So this passage really isn't a challenge for those outside of a relationship with Jesus to consider, hey, do you want to have faith in Christ for the first time? This is really not about salvific faith. It's not what it's about. This is more about daily sustaining faith, sanctifying faith. This is a message for those of us that have said, I'm following Jesus. And it forces me to ask myself the question, do I really have all the time faith in Jesus Christ like I've said I do? So here's how we're going to handle this. I'm going to read the passage for you, more or less verse by verse. We might take a couple verses at a time. We'll see. And then I'm going to comment on them. Help us to kind of understand, enter in, contemplate the message. And then I'm going to reserve the majority of the application till the end of the message. But let's try to get into this text and understand what it actually says. Not just what it says, though. We want to kind of feel it. I want to imagine what it must have been like to be in that boat so long ago. Verse 35, Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come. What's the day? Well, Jesus has had a day of ministry. A lot of people had come to Christ. In fact, crowds had come to hear him. So much so that he was often kind of pushed off the shore and had to stand out on a boat to do ministry. And yeah, there were those groups of religious scribes and Pharisees that were critical of Jesus' ministry, but there was also a lot of people that were benefiting from Jesus. And you know what? As you read this gospel up to this point, it's very clear that Jesus was demonstrating God's love. It was very clear that Jesus cared for people. I mean, he healed people that had been possessed by demons. Some were Jews, some were, well, one guy was a Gentile on the other side of the lake. Uh, He healed people with paralysis. He healed a woman that uh, had been bleeding for a long time. Jesus doing all kinds of ministry in this gospel, showing God's love, showing God's affection, showing God's care, showing God's concern. And now he's like, in his humanity, I mean, he is tired out. So this is what we're dealing with. So on the day when evening had come, whole day of ministry had gone by, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. By the way, in Mark, you'll often see this. Let's go to the other side. Okay, we're here now. Let's go to the other side. That's because the Sea of Galilee, upon which they were doing ministry, is more or less oval. Jordan comes in at the north, exits at the south. This side would be 
over to the eastern side of the sea was primarily Gentile territory. The western side was primarily Jewish territory. So Jesus would do all this ministry, and instead of going into a little bay, there really weren't any, he would just go to the other side. So he's back and forth, so he's getting away from the Jews that he had been ministering to, and he wants to kind of maybe go over to Gentile territory, figures I'm going to get a little bit of a, a break there because there's not as many listening ears. The crowd over there is a little cold. They're not particularly interested in hearing from a Jewish rabbi. So we're going to go to the other side uh, of the lake, and the idea is we got to get away from it, right? So he wants to just kind of get away, have a little Sabbath time, relax a bit, And you can imagine the scene then is that Jesus and his disciples were rather wiped out. They were tired. They were wanting to get away from the crowds. Secondly, it says, when evening had come. What happens when evening comes? Sun goes down. Gets darker, right? So they get on a boat. They're going out onto the lake. It's getting darker. Now, in our province, if you have an Ontario boating license, you are supposed to turn your lights on at night, right? When you're driving a boat. And if you don't, you can like kill somebody or potentially kill yourself. My dad was telling me a story, by the way. He was up at his cottage. He's out on this lake. It's like pitch black out. And he's ripping across the lake. He's got his lights on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it would seem, is a group of about five or six people in one canoe paddling across the lake with no lights. And it was like something out of a movie. He's just ripping along. All of a sudden, there's a canoe and there's a row of people with eyes wide open thinking they're going to get killed. Just at the last minute, the tail of the the canoe goes by as his boat passes them. But they almost lost their lives. Bad idea. Kind of a fearful circumstance. Imagine being out on a lake with no lights at night Okay, it's going to get worse, but you follow me so far? You're tired. It's getting dark. You're out on the water. And what happens next? Look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him, that is his disciples took Jesus, with them in the boat. Next phrase, just as he was, which probably means he was already on the boat which again tells you how big the crowds were, which gives you some indication of how tired he must have been. So he's on the boat, maybe preaching from the boat, and they're like, let's get away. What's the next statement? Are you kidding me? And other boats were with him. So they're just following Jesus around. Now these boats weren't particularly large. They would hold about 10 people or so. And... Jesus and his disciples uh, get into them. Uh, They've had a really tough day of ministry. When it comes to faith, by the way, do you tend to be a person of greater faith when you're well-rested and the sun is shining brightly, both literally and metaphorically? Or do you tend to have your best faith moments when you're tired out and you're wiped out? It's getting dark. We know the answer to that, right? So you can understand there's some fatigue going on here in these disciples. And then we have a problem. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. 
What kind of a windstorm? Little one? Medium-sized one? No, it says a great windstorm arose. Look at the descriptions in the text. And waves were breaking against the boat? No. Into the boat? Is that a problem or is that normal? It's a problem, right? So waves are breaking into the boat, but maybe they had big buckets and were bailing really, really fast and could outbail the waves. What do you think? We don't have to guess. So that the boat was already filling. Now these are, for the most part, seasoned fishermen. And even if you weren't a seasoned fisherman, it doesn't take a lot of experience to know, okay, I got a bucket, water's filling my boat, I should probably start bailing, right? So you can imagine there's eight or nine guys maybe on the boat plus Jesus, and they're bailing, they're in a windstorm, it's a great windstorm, water is all over the place, it's coming into the boat, and so much water is coming into the boat they can't keep up with it. Can't keep up with it. So what would we call this? We would call that a dire life circumstance. We would call this a huge problem. We would call, call this a horizontal problem that nobody around us can fix. Could we call it that? Now your mind should be turning right now. You should be connecting the dots. You have, something about, have you had some things like that in your own life? Some circumstances, you've tried to manage your way through them. You've tried to think your way through them. You've tried to talk your way through them. You've tried to pay your way through them. But the boat's filling up. And you're starting to wonder, as you can imagine, they're wondering, has God abandoned us? Does God care for us? Is God interested in us? We just saw him ministering to other people. But now we have a huge, huge problem. Look at the descriptions. Great windstorm, breaking into the boat, already filling everything in the horizontal, the natural realm, was pointing to imminent disaster. However, they had an advantage that you and I would, of course, love to have if we were out on the Great Lakes in a circumstance like this. Jesus was in the boat. Problem solved, right? Jesus is in the boat. So, I mean, the the water can pour in all at once. Jesus is in my boat. No problem, right? I would imagine Jesus at this point is also bailing water or waving a magic wand or doing something. Okay, let's find out what Jesus is doing. Look down at verse 38. But he was in the stern, the back of the boat. So far, so good. What's the next phrase? Not so good. He's asleep on the cushion. So the cushion was probably a big, couple hundred pound bag of ballast sand that they would put in these little boats in order to keep them upright. So it's in the back of the boat, in the stern, and all of this catastrophe is taking place around these early disciples. And Jesus is, we're told, fast asleep. Now, think about this. Let's suppose that this is our boat. The waves are breaking into the boat. So the boat's going like this, right? 
and the boat's going like that. Maybe it's going like this. Where would be the place in the boat if the boat was doing this or that or a little of each where there would be the least amount of movement? Right in the middle, right? Remember riding a teeter-totter as a kid before they were outlawed because some kid fell off someplace? Remember teeter-totters? So you get on one end, your buddy gets on the other, and you're up and down. There's not a lot of movement in the middle of the teeter-totter. You got to get on either end, and you have a lot of fun until your buddy jumps off and you hit the ground. Jesus was in the back of the boat. So that just tells us Jesus was on the end of the teeter-totter. So it's not like, well, maybe Jesus was sleeping because he was in the middle. He wasn't feeling it yet. No, no. If there's waves crashing into the boat, you can bet Jesus and his humanity is feeling it. He's aware of what's going on, but this is what makes it extra odd. Jesus is sleeping during these dire earthly circumstances. The next part of the verse says, and they woke him. Anything weird about that? So if you were in the boat, would you wake Jesus or would you let him sleep? Be honest. You wake him, right? Anything wrong with waking Jesus? No, nothing wrong with that. What do they do next? They said to him, if you were in the boat, would you not say something to Jesus? Is there anything wrong with speaking to God when we're having a difficulty in our lives? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with waking Jesus. Nothing wrong with speaking to Jesus. In fact, if you go to a passage like Psalm 50, verse 15, here's what the word of God tells us there. It says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. Now, the the next part of the psalm is quite helpful because it tells us what we're supposed to do with the deliverance that we've received. And therefore, it lets us in on the reason why God often allows us to be put in situations where we need to be delivered. What does the rest of that psalm say? And you shall glorify me. So that's a, that's a huge help. That's a huge key to unlocking the question of suffering. And that God often allows us to struggle and suffer. He then invites us to call upon him so that he would deliver us so that he would receive the glory. So based upon a verse like Psalm 50, verse 15, we can't say, oh, they shouldn't have woke Jesus. They shouldn't have spoke to him. That wasn't right. Nothing wrong with that. But notice what they say to Jesus when they wake him up. Pay attention. Teacher, what would you call that term? They're recognizing his authority. Had they not seen him teach? Had they not seen him heal? Had they not seen him cure some incredible diseases, cast out demons? Teacher, but then it gets weird. Gets very human, you could say. Do you not, what's the next word? Care. Do you not care that we are perishing? I think we have a problem in our hands. I think we have a huge problem on our hands. There is an acceptable reason to wake up Jesus. The acceptable reason would be to say, we need help. And in our feeble humanity, we acknowledge that you are the only one that can help us. 
and we just want you to help us, Lord. I mean, that would have been awesome. Because that, in fact, would have put Jesus in the chair that he, in fact, occupies. He's the king. He's the Lord. I'm not. I need you. That would have been an incredible act of humility and worship and surrender. God is not saying to us, hey, when you're struggling, just kind of keep it down. I don't want to hear from you. Just let me do my thing. No, he calls us to cry out to him. And the act of crying out to the Lord properly motivated is, in fact, an expression of humility. And it's a means of exalting God and acknowledging who he is. So that's great. So there's an acceptable reason to wake Jesus, but there's also a very unacceptable reason to wake up Jesus. And this is what we see in these early disciples. They, in fact, accuse Jesus of not caring. Do you not care that we're perishing? Think for a moment, church, about how ridiculous that was. What had they just done all day long? Seen Jesus caring. How about the day before? Seen Jesus caring. You know, it's, it's fascinating how much, even in our own lives, we can see Jesus do things over and over and over and over again in other people's lives, in the life of churches, even in our own lives. Come up with a big long list. Hey, it's praise night at harvest. Come on out. We're going to hear your testimonies. And the microphones are like loaded up all night long. Hey, this is what God's doing. This is what God's doing. This is what God's doing. And then all of a sudden, we're in the boat. The boat's filling up. And we're like, hey, is God really good? Let's write a book on it. Where is God when suffering happens? Let's write a book on that. And, and so quickly, we start to slide away, fall away, start to question, and then start to accuse and finger point, which is really what they're doing. Do you not care that we're perishing? It's all about them. The interesting thing about this question is that if you trace it back to its implication, what's the implication of this question? God isn't good. And is that not the implication that the serpent, the devil, convinced Adam and Eve of in Genesis chapter three when humanity fell into sin? You remember that? So I remember someone once told me many, many years ago, the root of every sin is in fact questioning or denying that God is good. I thought, man, really? I started thinking about all the different sins that I've committed or considered committing or I've seen. You know what? He's right. That's Genesis chapter three. Did God really say? So they start to question. Oh, no, no. God knows that if you take the fruit, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know good. In other words, God is holding out on you. You know what God is? He's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's not looking out for you. He's not really good. He's not really loving. He doesn't really care for you. They're like, you know what? Adam, what do you think? He's like, dude, I don't know. They go eat the fruit, and look what we have now today, because we chose not to believe that God was good, and instead chose to believe that God was somehow holding out on us. And we see that same problem surfacing here. Was their problem lack of evidence? No, it wasn't a lack of evidence. They'd seen it over and over again. Their problem was a lack of faith. Oh, they might have had faith on the shore, but they didn't have faith in the middle of a storm. Hey, it's easy to have faith in church. It's easy to have faith when things are going fairly well. 
But when the boat starts to turn into the teeter-totter, it's like, I don't know. We see it in them. We see it in ourselves. While Jesus wakes up and gracious as he is, instead of immediately rebuking them, it says he woke up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, let's just pause there for a minute. We're in church, we need to be honest. Let's just ask ourselves this question. If you were Jesus and you had two things to do, rebuke someone that had treated you poorly, questioned your character, and help them overcome the problem, which one would you do first? Would you fix the problem and then rebuke them? Or would you rebuke them and then fix the problem? I'll tell you what I would do. I'd tell them off first. And then depending on their attitude, maybe I'd fix the problem. But here we see God's grace and long-suffering coming through. And that the first thing he does is he fixes the problem. So here we see it. He said to the sea, just two things. Peace, be still. That's all he says. Look at the next phrase. The wind ceased. So Jesus said what? Be still. It ceased. And there was a great calm. Jesus said peace and there was a calm. So two commands, two responses. And here what we have now is Jesus demonstrating not just his power over the paralytic, not just his power over the leper, not just his power over the demon possessed, but now we have added to Jesus' power displays power over nature itself. And that's just awesome. And then he turns to them and he says, why are you so afraid? Well, we're in a boat. We almost drowned, Jesus. Look at the next question. Have you... What's the word? Still. No faith. Still equals, these were people who had reason before this to have more than enough faith in Jesus. These were not people, I never heard Jesus before until I was in the boat. No, no. These are people that had seen it. So this is why Jesus says, have you still no faith? It's like, do you not remember everything we just did today? Do you not remember all the miracles? Like still? How many times does God have to manifest his presence and his power to us before we just choose to believe? How many times? Have you still no faith? In asking these questions, Jesus is rebuking them. In rebuking them, he is not rebuking them for not liking their circumstances. Is he doing that? Does the text say, what's wrong with you guys? Almost losing your life on lakes is kind of fun. I'm not saying that. He doesn't say to us, hey, you know those cancerous tumors you just found out that you have? Why don't you like them? He's not saying, you know that relationship that just broke down the spouse that just abandoned you? I want you to like it. I'm not saying that. You know those broken relationships you have with extended family members because you've been trying to share your faith? Smile. That, that's fun. It's not saying that. 
They're not rebuked for not liking their circumstances. God is not saying, hey, we're supposed to just smile and pretend that all of the death and the divorce and the disease and the despair and the depression that we see in our world, are we supposed to like that? No. It's not asking us to like our circumstances. But he does rebuke them for demonstrating a specific kind of fear. There's two in the text. But this is a specific kind of fear. Faithless fear. Faithless fear. Rebukes them for that. For their faithlessness. Which has been demonstrated through fear. Again, still, by now Jesus felt they should have known better given all that they had seen him do. Well, in verse 41, there's fear again, but it's a different kind of fear. The Bible says, and they were filled, there it is again, with great fear. What kind of great fear, I wonder? Same as last time? No. He said, they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this kind of fear is what we would call reverential awe. It's like, oh, oh wow. This is like mind boggling. I knew, I knew Jesus could do some crazy stuff, but this is unbelievable. And quickly their faithless fear moves into this reverential kind of fear where they're acknowledging the holy terror of God that even the weather itself was controlled by the words of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you have an interest in apologetics, defending the claims of Christian faith, the Christian faith vis-a-vis all, their, all other sects and cults and religions and worldviews, and you happen to bump into those that would say, oh, I believe the Bible, I just don't think Jesus is God. Well, you don't even need Colossians 1 or John 1, which didactically declare that he is. You can take him to passages like this, which illustrate that he is. His divinity shows through loud and clear in that he is controlling weather. Not to mention casting out demons and healing people of life-threatening illnesses. So this is pretty cool here where Jesus is demonstrating his power over the earth and then focus back in on the statement that they make. Who then is this? What do they mean by that? Okay, let's, let's look at two options. It's like, who then is this? Anybody know? Who do you think he is? I'm not sure. Who do you think he is? Is it that or is it like, who is this? I think it's the second one, right? So what we have here, it's not complete, but we have here in its root form a confessional statement. So it's not as full of a confessional statement as Peter's. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a really good one. But I think what we have here is at least in, in root form the beginnings of a confessional statement. And that in asking the question, They're not saying, we don't know who he is. They're beginning to increasingly see who he, in fact, truly is. So this demonstrates or indicates to us that their faith has been, in fact, increased through this 
encounter with Christ in the middle of a very difficult set of circumstances. Again, they didn't know him fully enough to call him by some of his divine names. Those, those will come if you keep reading the Gospel of Mark. But they had felt something and seen something and experienced something in that encounter with Christ that increased their faith. Let's think about how this works itself out in our lives. So first of all, we're never gonna be on the Sea of Galilee in a boat with Jesus in a storm. But that doesn't make this merely an exercise in studying some historical episode because the gospel writer felt that it was important enough years later to record in God's word under the inspiration of God's spirit and pass it on to struggling believers like the church in Rome because there was something in this that would benefit them. And we've received this account from the life of Christ because God evidently thinks that there's something in this that is meant to continue to benefit us today. So let's consider that. Let's consider how this is supposed to benefit us as God's people. Let me share with you five things. Number one, the gospel is not calling us to go numb when we experience physical danger. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not grin and bear it. Pretend that your broken relationships are fun. Pretend that your disease is fun. Pretend that your lack of money is fun. Just pretend it's not there. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not calling us to deny our physical circumstances. Did Jesus himself not make some pretty categorical statements about not liking and appreciating the circumstances he was in while he was here on earth? I mean, do we see him on the cross? And I mean this in the most careful way. Was Jesus on the cross smiling, saying, hey, this is, this is fun? No, he wasn't. The gospel doesn't call us to deny our physical pain, but let us never accuse Jesus of not caring for us in it. Let us never cross that line. Maybe when you grew up, there were certain things you were allowed to say in your family, but your mom or dad would say, okay, but what you will never say is, and it might've been like, don't ever tell me to shut up, or that'll be like huge. So you make like this mental note, I will just never cross that line. Or hopefully as a believer, you've kind of formed in your, in your head this, this notion, I will never blaspheme God. Even if I feel like it, I'll never say it. I'll never blaspheme God. There's certain things I just never say. This is one of them. Add this one to the list. Never accuse God of not caring. Never accuse God of not caring. That's the root sin in Genesis chapter three. It's what they're guilty of here. God loves us. God cares for us immensely. And so the second one is this, that the gospel is not guaranteeing delivery from every storm, meaning that sometimes the boat capsizes and goes down. Sometimes it does. 
The gospel is not guaranteeing us delivery from every storm, but Jesus will always be present. Even if it doesn't appear that he is immediately fixing it. Just think about that for a little bit. One of the doctrines that we hold dear as Bible-believing Christians is the doctrine that says God is omnipresent. It's like one of those immutable, can't take it away, can't twist it doctrines about God. God is everywhere. He's everywhere present. And we believe that with all of our hearts. We also believe that for the believer, the up-close presence of God has been given to us every day through the indwelling presence of God's spirit and the presence of Christ from the moment of our conversion onward. We may not always be conscious of it. We may not always be allowing the fact that God is all present in our lives, that he indwells us to be affecting and influencing the way that we think or process life's events, but it is absolutely true. That God is our ever, ever, present, present, help in time of need. He's always there. And there are times, admittedly, where God's presence is more evident. We often speak of the manifest presence of God. Like like God was everywhere present in Daniel's life, but he showed up in power in the lion's den. There's times in scripture where God's presence is manifest. It's like the the sharp point of God's power. Now it's it's there, it's evident, can't deny it. I knew it was there, but now it's right in front of me. So brother and sister, if you know the Lord, the spirit of God lives in you, the spirit of Christ dwells in you, He is your ever-present help. He may not always appear to be fixing the problem in the moment. We'll talk about why that is often the case momentarily. But I want you to know that this is one of the things that this gospel teaches us. Jesus will always be present. Third, we should ask Jesus to deliver us. Just ask. Again, Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Oh, by the way, so that you'll glorify me. But we can ask. The Lord's prayer models that we can ask, but don't accuse. So be careful with your words. Don't accuse God of wrongdoing. Just ask him to help you. And this is why. When we ask, again, we are demonstrating humility. When we accuse We're demonstrating the opposite of humility, pride. We're trying to usurp God's authority in the moment. So we ask, but we don't accuse. Fourth, Jesus has power over demons, leprosy, paralysis, the sea, and the wind. Who has that kind of power? God, and so there is no greater power than God. If God is for you, who can be against you? So no matter what the problem might be, and again, in many ways what this text is doing is it's reminding us of 
the basics. It's like, this is Christianity 101, but we need it all the time, every day, regular reminders. Only God can do everything. Very basic. So we go to God believing that he can do everything. Never, well, I know he does this, but he doesn't do this. I know he's into this, but he's not into that. You know what? He's probably busy. So I'm going to manage this circumstance by myself. Anybody here naturally kind of, you're kind of like a manager? I'm kind of a manager. So we all know greatest strength, greatest weakness, right? So I have a problem. Okay, here's my default, just being honest. I'm going to think my way through it. I'm going to talk my way through it. I'm going to figure out how to put the pieces back together in order to get through it. And sometimes God's like, okay, go for it. And you actually succeed. Okay, I'm through the problem. But God doesn't get the glory. And my faith doesn't increase. And other times God allows circumstances to happen in your lives. It's like, man, I've been figuring on this for a long time. I've been thinking on this one for a long time. I've been managing on this one for a long time. And I'm just like, head against the wall. We have a situation in our church. It's not, it's not a moral issue. It's not a... Um, it's not as significant as some of the things we experience in life, but it does eat up a lot of my time and energy. And I, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I find it really, really frustrating. And it relates to our desire to expand our facility. So we have a facility and it's too small and we need more parking and we need more, um, more of an auditorium to minister in. But guess what our problem is? Our problem is snakes. You're like, oh, he's speaking metaphorically. No, I'm not speaking metaphorically. Our problem literally is snakes. Like, oh, how is that a problem? Well, we're up against about 300 acres of protected woodlot. And when we moved in there seven years ago, it wasn't a big deal. But the government has this Species at Risk Act. So now it's like if you leave a pile of brush out back and a snake crawls into it that's an endangered species, you can never move that pile of brush. And if you go through the Ministry of the Environment to move the pile of brush, you've got to give them another pile of brush over here. So we're trying to build, we're trying to expand, and we have two rare species of snakes that live in and around our church. A couple times they've come in. And some other endangered crit- critters out back. And I'm not the kind of guy, I'm not saying, let's, let's, let's bulldoze the snakes, let's kill them. I'm not saying that. But I want to do ministry, man. I want to see people's lives transformed. And I spent countless, spend countless hours in meetings and on phone calls and reading documents with our elders and our team trying to figure, and I'm telling you, it's like so, so frustrating. And every once in a while, I, I feel that, that question coming up, why are you doing this to me, Jesus? And I'm like, oh. It's my lack of faith. I can't manage my way through this one. You can make 10 phone calls, you get like one answer. Then you make 10 more and you get a different answer. So we're doing our thing. We're having our meetings. We're asking the questions and we're trying to build the relationships and understand. But I know that at the end of the day, the Lord's just laid this so heavily upon my heart that if the Lord doesn't build the city, the labors labor in vain. This has to be a work of God. God's either gonna let us expand somehow or we're going to move. But in all of this frustration, I want to become a better man for it. 
I want to grow in my faith. Now, think about some of the things that bother you. Maybe things at work. Some of you are in business. You're like, man, we just have this ongoing problem in the workplace. Or it might be a problem in this church, maybe a financial problem. I don't, I don't even know. I didn't ask Daryl. He didn't feed me any things to suggest to you. But maybe there's a financial problem here. Maybe there's some marriages that are broken up. Or maybe there's some relational discord. Or maybe you've tried to share your faith with your extended family and they hate your guts for it. Like, I can't figure my way through this. Or maybe, maybe God has put you in those circumstances because he's less concerned with the tangible outcome with which you are so looking forward to, and he's more concerned with helping you and me just grow up and mature uh, in our faith and demonstrate the kind of faith we, we say is true, faith in God and not faith in self or faith in our ingenuity. So that's the fourth one. Here's the fifth. We should always have a, a, a healthy fear, meaning awe, of Jesus. And that means we need to commit Never, ever, ever to diminish him. Especially when he's being really caring and kind. Never to diminish him. Never to interpret his long suffering or his kindness as weakness. Let me make an observation from culture, which I think all of you will agree with. We human beings are naturally adverse to authority. We just don't like it. By God's spirit, we learn to surrender to it, but we don't like authority. So from, from the time we're young, we don't like mama and daddy's authority. We go to school, we don't like the teacher's authority. We're always picking on government. I mean, let's face it, no matter who's elected, we're not going to like them. We don't like authority. We don't like pastoral authority. Ladies, by nature, you're not going to like your husband's authority. We just don't like authority. But sometimes we put up with it. And other times we look for weaknesses, right? Chinks in the armor. Like, oh, there's, there's a weakness. Now I can attack. And it's, it's interesting that sometimes we look for weakness and authority to attack. It's because there's a legitimate weakness in the authority. But other times we attack authority when in fact the authority is just being very gracious and gentle and loving and kind. So we used to have substitute teachers come to school when we were young. Remember that? And uh, like shamefully, we were just terrible to substitute teachers. I mean, they were like the nicest teachers ever. And by the end of the day, they always left crying, right? We were just terrible. They weren't being mean to us and therefore we attacked back. No, they were nice. We saw that weakness, that vulnerability, and so we attacked. Or this is classic in the church. When the pastor's like tough and pounding his fist, no, I don't want to go near that guy. I'll submit to his authority. When he's very gracious and kind and loving, oh, well, now it's time to attack, right? And so you're like caught in this weird dynamic as a pastor, elder in a church. Well, do I, do, am I really nice with people? And do I open myself up because I know human nature, they're going to attack? Or do I lay down a little too much law to push people back? And it's just this weird, weird dynamic that often takes place. And I, I think that in some ways, that's why Jesus is being treated this way by his disciples. I mean, because what other explanation is there for them to say you don't care? Well, that's almost entirely what he had been doing up till now. He'd been benevolent. He'd been loving. He'd been gracious. He'd been kind. And out of all the things 
they could pick on Jesus for? It's like, well, you don't care. I don't care. That's what I've been doing like all day long. So Jesus cares for them in fixing their problem. But you know what else Jesus does? He reestablishes his authority by rebuking them. So here we have presented to us in the gospel this awesome picture of not just a benevolent Messiah and not just a sovereign king, but a benevolent king. In his response, Jesus reestablishes the fact that he does care, but he also reestablishes firmly the fact that he is the king. Think about that in your own life. So often, one of those things goes missing when we're sinning. So think of some of these thoughts that maybe have crossed your mind. Maybe you've even said them with your, with your mouth. Uh, I'm going to live in sin, and I'm, I'll just square up with Jesus later. So what is that? Well, squaring up with Jesus later suggests I kind of know that he's the king, but I'm going to kind of take advantage of him. I'll, I'll just sin so that grace might abound, you know, to use biblical language. And I'll, I'll square up with them later. He, he's, he's so loving, he's so gracious, he kind of has to forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to have a little season of selfishness for a while. I'll do what I want because he must forgive me. I remember years ago, one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard anybody ever say in pastoral ministry and there was a whole background context to it, so it probably won't even sound as bad to you as it sounded to me, is a woman who was planning on leaving her husband for another man. And one of our elders said, are you really saved? She's like, once saved, always saved. And I knew what she meant by that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with God's grace, take advantage of it, and do whatever I want. That's disgusting. But so often we're like that, right? Oh, he's so nice. He has to forgive me. So I'll just do whatever I want for the next little while. Or then we get accusatory. Why don't you do more? It's almost like, aren't you tough enough, Jesus? Or fine, I'll do it myself. I'll figure my way through it or I'll talk my way through it or I'll pay my way through it. So in this gospel episode, I think one of the implications of the text is that the gospel itself is in fact being presented to us in Jesus' response. And what I mean by that is that Jesus' response, because the gospel is in fact an authority issue, is Jesus issuing a call as the king to his rebellious subjects to take off your little paper crowns Stop pretending you're in charge and bend your knee and bow to me knowing that I am in fact and ever will be a benevolent king. Jesus is just that. He is our king, so we must be careful in how we approach him, but he also is ever benevolent and therefore ever caring. So here's what I've done. I've summarized it for you in five quick statements and they all kind of naturally flow into each other. Maybe this will be helpful for you just to kind of condense it down. So here's truth number one from this gospel. We will face fearful events. Someone says, hey, come to Jesus. All your problems are going to be solved. Liar. No. 
your problem with a capital P will be solved. Eternal separation from God. But no, you'll still have problems. Sometimes they might get worse. I know it's not a very good way to market the faith, but that's not our job. So we will face fearful events. So we're still going to experience persecution and pushback from government. And we're going to experience broken relationships and disease is still going to ruin our bodies. Uh, We will face fearful events. Christ wants us to exercise faith in place of fear. So get rid of the fear and exercise faith. And here's where that leads. Faith leads to awe. Because as we exercise faith in God and allow God to do what we are unable to do, God works and you're like, wow, I can't even take the credit for that. I wanted to, I tried to, but I can't. Jesus did that. God did that in my life. Now, I want you to consider this too. If life was perfect in this world and we were still called to exercise faith, what would we be exercising faith in? We could still exercise faith in the sense of rationally acknowledging that God is who he says he is, but there would be no outlet really to exercise sanctifying faith, like real, real trust in the moment, in the risks and the difficulties of life in God. So here we have this, this really interesting dynamic. We face fearful events. God says, hey, don't bring, bring fear to the mix, bring faith. Then God works. Faith leads to awe. Okay, here's where it gets really good. Where does awe lead? To worship, right? So awe leads to worship. When we worship God, we're like, ah. We're not just singing words because they go together and make good lyrics. Those words really are testimonies or biblical proclamations that express our awe and therefore our humility under the sovereign hand of God. And if our ultimate commission in life is to glorify God, which I think it is, then follow the trail backwards. If it's all about worship, and awe encourages me to worship, and I get awe when I see God work because I can't, and the difficulties of life are what put me in a position to exercise faith, so that I can get to the awe, so that I can give honor to God, then in fact, suffering is always meant to be redemptive and God glorifying. So through the eyes of faith then, we count our sufferings as redemptive opportunities in order to position ourselves to be who God really wants us to be, which is worshipers. And this is a uniquely Christian view of suffering. Hinduism says, just deny that suffering exists. Islam says, well, some people deserve it. Christianity presents us with this very unique view of suffering, that God uses suffering as a tool to redeem us and make us greater worshipers. And then, here's the fifth point. When we worship, we are truly no longer afraid, but in fact, replace human fear with reverential awe. And that just kind of takes us all the way 
around to the beginning again in that we face fearful events without fear. So as we go through these circumstances in life and they begin to build, it helps us to tackle the next cycle of suffering uh, when it comes upon us. So church, let us then approach God reverently. As we consider our own lives, if you can identify perhaps some fear in your own life, a lack of faith, here's what I want to admonish you and encourage you to consider. Cast off your fear. Point your eyes to Christ. Believe that he loves you, that he cares for you, and even if he's not fixing the specific or the particulars that you find yourself in right now, he is working out a grander and broader plan as you respond in faith to mature you, to build you up, to become more and more like Jesus Christ so that you will be overwhelmed with his glory, so that you will be thrust forward into a life of worship. And in that place of worship, fear will literally be no more. So let's be encouraged by these words. Cast off fear, trust, be amazed, and worship him for who he is. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, I I just think this is a message that I need like every day. Uh, Thank you that you are a God that grants us the gift of faith in our salvation that awakens us to our sin and helps us to see Jesus Christ for the first time as our Lord and Savior and for that, that saving faith, which is just such a precious gift that we have. But here today, Father, we've just been challenged to ask ourselves the question, but do I have faith in all the days that I live between my salvation and uh, my glorification? And Father, I think many of us here would probably say, yeah, there's, there's some work to be done in that area. So Father God, I pray that you would graciously Uh, equip us and encourage us and help us to be people of faith. And we pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate that faith by uh, refusing to ever believe that you don't love us. That we would choose to believe you do love us. You care for us deeply. I mean, you even sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to be ridiculed and abused by us. You've sustained us every day of our lives by your grace. Help us never to lose sight of that when we face a roadblock. Father, increase our faith supernaturally. And as our faith is increased, Lord, we ask that you would just help us to be great worshipers. To take our eyes off the things of this world, to point them to you, to find great joy and contentment in you, to truly be a vertical church that brings glory to God. Thank you for being so clear Thank you for being convicting. Now, Lord, we pray that you would equip us to put this message into practice as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.